So, beloved, what, what, does it, what does it look like when a human heart and life is greatly absorbed, captivated, engrossed, and gripped by the saving one, the most amazing one, Jesus Christ. What does it look like? Well, I would say it looks something like the heart and life of the Apostle Paul, which is on display for us in this letter to the church in Philippi. And to behold Paul's heart for Christ and his life lived out selflessly and courageously for the fame, glory, and honor of Christ as displayed in this letter is, I I must say, quite a beautiful, stirring, and inspiring thing. And I would add that, that what we see in Paul here in this letter, it makes absolute sense. Absolute sense in light of who Christ actually is. And all that he has done and is doing and has promised to do for all those who are his. For Jesus Christ is indeed truly, truly deserving of every Christian's complete loyalty and love and submission. Yes? But I also find what we see in Paul to be rather convicting. And wanting to challenge you as well in these things, my dear brothers and sisters in Christ, I humbly ask you the following. Who is your heart and life? Mostly absorbed, and I say mostly because on this side of the cross, it'll never be perfectly, but mostly Absorbed, captivated, engrossed, and gripped by who? Is it, is it your remarkable, marvelous, merciful, perfectly good, and all-wise Savior, Jesus Christ? Who is for sure the only one worthy of all of our devotion and worship? Or, or is it in truth the unworthy and undeserving of such things you that you're too often gripped and captivated by? Who is it, beloved, that mainly guides, rules, and reigns in and over your heart in life? Is it almighty, loving, and righteous King Jesus? Which, by the way, is truly, truly the only one anyone should want guiding ruling and reigning over their life? Or is it, is it thoroughly messed up, broken, and sin-infected you 
that you are repeatedly allowing and choosing to have guide and rule over your life. Beloved, who are you most, who are you most determined to live for? Is it the one who greatly suffered and died to rescue you from your sinful self? To save you forever from the eternal wrath of God that every sinner justly deserves? And make you heirs of his glorious kingdom that is to come? Or... Is it a selfish and self-serving you that you are determined to live for? And beloved, finally, what is the greatest goal of your life? What is it? Is it the full realization of Christ? To finally possess and enjoy Christ for all eternity? Or is it something much, much, much less valuable and temporal and not truly worthy of being longed for and passionately and sacrificially pursued by you? These are the questions that are coming to my mind as I read through this text and through this letter. And I see Paul's life and heart on display. And these are the questions, beloved, that I am asking myself. And I pray that you would let the powerful and wonderful Spirit of God work in your heart concerning these questions as well, for your good and for God's glory. With that, let's read the text. Philippians 1, beginning in the latter part of verse 18, the Apostle Paul writes these words, Yes, and I will rejoice, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ. And to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. This is part two. This is part two. We've covered some of this section already. I, if you missed it, I, as always, encourage you to go back and, and pick it up online and hear it there. A little bit of review, rolling context. In the previous section, in the previous section, verses 12 through 18, the first part of 18, Paul is rejoicing in the advance of the gospel, the message of Christ that was occurring 
through his present incarceration. In fact, it was contributing to the advancement of the gospel. And in that, regardless of what's going on, regardless of the fact that he has lost his freedom, regardless of some personal animosity among Christian brothers and sisters, you'd have to go back and listen to all that, against Paul, he was rejoicing because in the end, the gospel was advancing. The good news, the message of Jesus Christ was being made known there in a greater way in Rome. Then, in the part that we looked at last time, in the latter part of 18 and 20 of this section, Paul anticipates his rejoicing in Christ. So he's rejoicing now in the present circumstances. Now he anticipates his rejoicing in Christ, or rejoicing, in this, that Christ will be glorified, this time, through his upcoming trial. So I rejoice in my present imprisonment, Why? Because I'm a masochist and I like stuff like this? No, but because God, because of this, because God is using it to advance His name, to advance the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And and in that, I am rejoicing. And as I look forward and wait for my pending trial, I know I will rejoice because Christ, at that trial, With the help of your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, He will be exalted. He will be glorified. No matter what the outcome, whether I am allowed to live or I am made to die, I am going to rejoice because He will be lifted up. Do you see, Paul? Do you see that? Because as I told you, as he explains these things to us, they are meant to instruct us. We're to see something here. We're to learn something from the life of the Apostle Paul. With all that, he says in verse 21, for to me, for to me, Paul, to live is Christ and to die is gain. This statement explains Paul's commitment And Paul's statements found in the previous verses we already covered. This is why. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And I said last time in explaining what it might or what it means to live is Christ, it can be explained this way. The foundation, center, as one commentator puts it, the foundation, center, purpose, direction, power, and meaning of Paul's life is Christ. For Paul, the purpose of living is pressing forward to better know and serve Christ each day. For to me to live is Christ. That's what it means. And to die is gain. Gain of what? The gain, the full gain, the gaining of the one Paul is pursuing in his life. The gain of Christ. As one writer puts it, if Paul is executed, that means the goal of living has thus been reached. Wow. He will finally have gained Christ's death, for Paul is the gaining of his lifelong passion. What is your lifelong passion, beloved? He knows that when that occurs, he will forever be with the one he has been living and longing for, Christ. Then, in verse 22, Paul goes on now, and this is where we left off last time, to ponder or reflect on what it would mean for Paul if he lived, or if the outcome of his trial was his release rather than his execution. Which is why it's so important that we read all of this in context so we understand what Paul is really saying here. And by the way, both outcomes, his release or his execution, were possible. And let me add this, and don't miss it, both were outside of Paul's control. It wasn't up to him. 
It wasn't up to him. The Roman tribunal that he would stand before had the power to either release Paul and let him go on living or sentence him to death and bring his life on this earth to an end. So look at verse 22 as he ponders and reflects on what it would mean if he lived. If I am to live in the flesh, or as the NIV 84 translates it, if I am to go on living in the body, what would that mean? That means fruitful labor for me. Fruitful labor, what is that? Well, I hope you know it's not the work of fruit picking. It is not that. But rather, beloved, it is labor for the cause and glory and honor of Jesus Christ. Fruitful labor. As one uh, translation, which is not as literal and more of a more of an interpretation of the underlying text, the NLT puts it this way, but if I live, as I consider such things, if I am to live, I can do more fruitful work for Christ. This is instructive for us in at least two ways, in at least two ways. There's probably more, but just two that I could come up with for you this morning and that I work through myself, and that is these two ways, what is foremost in Paul's mind and Paul's attitude, Paul's attitude about life, which is impacted by his passion for Christ and his statement, for me to live is Christ. So first, what is foremost? What is foremost? What, it, what comes out first out of Paul's mind as he considers, if I am to live, then what? Paul doesn't say, but if I live, if I make it out of this situation alive, I might be able to finally take that European vacation I have been hoping to take all of my life. Or anything remotely like that. And let me say this, while there is certainly nothing intrinsically wrong about Christians wanting to take, yes, it's okay, baby, or taking vacations, as we do, uh-huh, I do think this should cause one to ask themselves, what, what is the dominating or governing goal or desire or purpose of my life? Because that is what we see in verse 22 for Paul. That is what first, that is what overrides everything else. Regardless of what I'm doing, whatever's happening, here's the thing I'm looking forward to. And I know will occur because for to me to live is Christ. More fruitful labor for Christ if I live. That's the first thing that comes to mind. What about you? What about you? Is it for you? Do you think, do you say, with the days that the Lord gives me on this earth, in whatever circumstances I might find myself, as long as I am able, with the help of the Holy Spirit, because you won't do it without Him, I hope and will strive to serve magnify and exalt Christ in all kinds of different ways more and more with my life to do fruitful work for Christ because for me to live is Christ. You see, convicting, I think, for me, for you. Second, but if I live, I can do more fruitful work for Christ as he considers, what if he's released? Listen, we see something about 
Paul's attitude, his perspective on life. One commentator says this. I thought this was so good. And again, convicting. When Paul, he says, contemplates the real possibility that he may not be executed, but be released and continue to live, he is not in doubt about the positive consequence of remaining in the flesh. If he is allowed to continue living in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. To live is Christ, is a life of fruitful labor. Yes, good. Then he says, what an amazing expression of enthusiasm for life. Paul did not say that this life is so wretched and so worthless that it would be better to die in order to escape its endless toil and drudgery, which I must confess I have said. More than once. He did not list all the physical ailments and the emotional turmoil that he would surely have to endure if he continued to live. I mean, this guy's got a past. He knows what it is, at least in his current circumstances, historical context, to live for Christ, right? He wouldn't expect it to be any different going forward. Beaten, whipped, persecuted, abused, betrayed, hated. But if I live, then it gives me the opportunity to be more fruitful for Christ. You see that? My God. Goodness, he goes on to say just the opposite of that. Paul was totally confident that this life, this physical life, means fruitful labor. And for Paul, making Christ known, planting churches, and strengthening the church, which it may not look exactly the same for us. We don't have the exact same calling. We do not that Paul had, but we have similar callings to make Christ known, not by church planting necessarily, to the Gentile world, but to make him known in word and in deed, and to strengthen the church, encourage the church. Yeah. And so there is something good for us to do if we shall live. What an attitude. Yeah. So think on those things, beloved. I am. Look back at the text. 22, if I am to live in the flesh, that means, that means fruitful labor for me. <laughs> it's a positive, beloved. It's a positive. You'll see that because he's going to have a hard time deciding here about which option or which outcome would be better. So we know it's a positive. It, it, it ranks right up there very close to Dying and being with Christ. So we know it's a positive statement. Not, uh, if I live, I'll, you know, have to labor for Christ. I'll have to go on laboring for Christ. Which is how I have felt at times. <laughs> wow. And so I, I'm, you know, repenting of such things. Seeing that it's not the right way to think about such things. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is, that is far better. Let's break it down carefully, looking at each phrase here, so we... Hopefully, come away with the right understanding of what Paul is looking to communicate via his statements. Yet which shall I, or which I shall choose? Yet which I shall choose? Yet which I shall choose? Choose, choose, all right? One commentator, looking at that word, the underlying Greek word, translated choose, says this, when the verb occurs in the New Testament, it is used exclusively in the middle voice with the sense of 
choose or prefer? It goes on to say, in Philippians 1.22, it does not mean that Paul literally had the prerogative of choosing his fate, but it is a reference to his personal preference. He had, I, that's why I said, listen, it's not up to him. This isn't, it's not up to him. He is looking forward to the trial. He realizes the decision is going to be made one way or the other. He may live, he may die, but he's going to rejoice either way because he knows whether it be through living or dying, he is going to exalt Christ, defend his name, make him known before that pagan Roman empire. And that is true because for him to live is Christ and, well, to die is gain. Either way, I win. Because of Christ. So this is his personal preference. And in fact, there's a translation that picks that up. It's called the NET translation. And it just says, yet I don't know which I prefer. And I think that's better. It's more helpful. Because when you first read, and which shall I choose, you might think wrongly that Paul's debating should I take my life? Of course not. That's not the context. He's looking forward to the trial. And to think that Paul, after he just said what he said, for me to live is Christ, and if I am to go on living, it means fruitful labor for me for Christ. What? Of course not. He's not that guy. He's, he's, as long as he lives, it's Christ. And if he dies, it's Christ. He's not living for him. And he is a man who... Because he's for Christ, is willing to sacrifice and has been sacrificing for Christ. He glories in the suffering of Christ that he's experiencing as a follower of his. He glories in it. He doesn't shy away from it. He's not trying to escape it. And while this world has its difficulties, certainly, he knows that Christ still moves through all of it and accomplishes his goodwill through his people so he glories, he rejoices. So the idea that Paul would be contemplating suicide because he's so discouraged, no, no, beloved. So I think if you look at it as prefer, it'll be more helpful to you to stay away from such ideas, but we'll go on. One writer concerning the idea that he, it's a preference, he says, the, well, that is the prospect of continuing to, for Paul, of continuing to labor for the cause and glory and honor of Christ, he says this, makes continuing to live so attractive, so attractive, right, that Paul is genuinely perplexed, right? Because if the one was just ugly and disgusting, then there'd be no comparison. There'd be no reason that he would be torn between the two, right? If it's like hell or heaven, okay, I'm not torn between the two, Right? No, it's life on earth for Christ, or it's life with Christ in his glorious kingdom, in his heaven. All right, so, but both are positive. However, for me personally, <laughs> it's going to be far better, because this is my ultimate end anyway. It's what Christ has destined for me. It is for me to be with him in all, of, all glory, unhindered fellowship, right? So... That's what's going on. But he says this, he makes continuing to live so attractive, it makes continuing to live so attractive that Paul is genuinely perplexed. And he says this, when the gain of dying is compared to the fruit of living, it is difficult to tell what the best alternative is. This is what's happening here with Paul as he reflects, as he ponders out loud for you to be instructive. The question does not indicate that Paul actually has the power to choose life or death, or that, or that this, that he's trying to make up his mind whether to petition God for life or death. That's been suggested too. That's ridiculous. It's ridiculous in, in, as you understand Paul and you understand the context. I don't know which to ask God for. That's, I would say that's better than thinking that he's actually contemplating suicide. I could see maybe in his darkest moment saying, I don't know which to ask God for, to take my life, to kill me, or to let me live. That's not what's going on there. He's just contemplating the alternatives out loud. And then in verse 22, he says, I cannot tell 
Yet, which shall I choose? Which shall I prefer? I cannot tell. The NIV translates it, I do not know. The verb that's translated in the NIV, I do not know, and the ESV, I cannot tell, is one of Paul's, as one commentator scholar put, points out, one of Paul's regular verbs for disclosure. For disclosure. In other words, I cannot disclose. He goes on to say, given Pauline usage elsewhere, the English idiom, I can't tell, which is how it's basically translated in the ESV, meaning in light of the alternatives, I don't know what to say, I don't know what to say, is probably closer to Paul's intent of the statement. Which is the better? I don't know what to say as I consider and weigh the positive benefits of both. His point, of course, is that he really had, if he really had a choice, the alternatives would put him into a genuine quandary, if he really had a choice. Since from a given perspective, either is to be preferred. If I am to go on living, more fruitful labor for me in Christ. But if I am to die, <laughs> he's all mine. I don't know what is best. He's, he's walking you through it, his thought process. But you've got to walk all the way through it to the end. One scholar points out, Paul is simply leading his readers step by step through his own process of thinking about the alternatives of life and death in the context of actually facing the potential of life and death in his trial. At this point in the process, he admits that he is genuinely bewildered by the question of his own preference. He goes on to say in verse 23, I am hard pressed between the two. The NIV translates it, I am torn between the two, right? Two... Good, two positive ideas, alternatives, I should say. These two things are going to happen. If I live this, if I die this, I'm torn as I think about what is the best alternative. Again, a scholar points out, he's not talking about life or death in the abstract, but about being set free, life, okay? So this has a context, a historical context, or executed death. And he has no choice whatever in this matter. So his choice that he's talking about is really a matter of yearning, pure and simple. What am I to yearn for? What am I to prefer? And that is where he is hard-pressed between, as he will go on to say later in chapter 3, obtaining the prize, which is Christ, or continuing on in fruitful labor for Christ. That's what's going on here. Then in verse 23, as we move through the conversation in his head, if you will, as he ponders, he says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better, literally by far the best, as I said last time, by far the best. So if choice were to be had, Paul now goes on, he would certainly opt for execution if choice were to be had, since that would mean the realization, as we've said, as I've said before, of his lifelong passion. I guess if it were up to me, and it's not, because ultimately, beloved, and Paul knows this, it's up to God. But he also knows, present circumstances, that a decision is going to be made by the Roman tribunal when he faces them. And it's a decision of life or death. It's not up to him. But if I had a choice in the matter, I'd choose execution. Because for me, to die is gain. But if I am to live, that's a great outcome as well. That's a great outcome as well. I'll go on producing for Christ. Then he says in Philippians 1, 23, 24, and he says this. He's worked through it. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. And look what he says. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Who is he writing to? Church in Philippi, Christians in Philippi. 
a church that he planted, a church that he's been partnered with for the last 10 years in ministry in one way or another, a church that he loves and cares for, a church that loves and cares for him, a church that he's instructed and taught and helped, a church that's having a few troubles, eternal conflicts, struggles, persecutions. There's more work to be done there. There's more work to be done there. He knows of certain things he wants to address. He would love to see them again. He says, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. One writer says, since choice cannot be had, remaining in the flesh for their sakes is more likely the divine choice. That's likely what Paul is, is expressing. I know that ultimately, while if it was up to me, I'd prefer to be home with my Lord. I'd prefer to see him. But I also know that if I remain in the flesh, I can go on serving my Lord and helping his church, his blessed church, and making him known that other sinners might come to this amazing one and bow their knee to him. So likely, I think, I believe, God will cause me to remain in the flesh. Because it's more necessary on your account. I have more work to do among you. You need to hear more from me. One writer says, what we learn in this sentence is what we could have easily guessed. He, had he a real choice, that would be hands down in favor of death. Precisely because execution would mean to depart and be with Christ. From his vantage point, his eschatological vantage point, his end of times, end of things vantage point, this would be far better, for sure. At the same time, however, also with the Philippians in view, that's who he's writing to and thinking of, he acknowledges that to remain in the flesh is the more necessary for their sakes. And again, it just it shows you a man who has been gripped by Christ because he is other-centered, specifically the people of God-centered, more so even than his own advantage. It would certainly be an advantage. It would be the greatest advantage to me. But for your advantage, I can see it would be better for me to remain. And therefore, and that's what he says in verse 25, convinced of this, I know that I will remain. But he's not saying, and I should have, that tone shouldn't have come down. I know that I will remain. Oh, gosh. Oh, right? Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Convinced of what? Convinced of what? That Paul making it out alive was more necessary for the Philippians' sake, for their progress and joy in the faith, in the Christian faith. And so he was confident that God, because he knows God is ultimately sovereign over all things and will determine the outcome, he was confident that God would keep him alive for the time being so that he might continue his service to them and to others as well, but certainly in this letter to them, to the Philippians. One translation, again, the NLT puts 25 like this. Knowing this... I am convinced that I will remain alive so I can continue to help all of you grow and experience the joy of your faith. The NIRV, picking up at verse 24, translates it like this, but it is more important for you that I stay alive. I'm sure of that. So I know I will remain with you. As, um, as history, uh, ancient church history tells us and recorded by the scholar, he says this, evidence from the pastoral epistles confirmed by considerable early historical testimony indicates that Paul was released from this first Roman imprisonment and he had opportunity for travel, including a trip through Macedonia and presumably Philippi, that area before being re-imprisoned and then suffering a martyr's death. That was his second Roman imprisonment. He didn't make it out of that one alive. But he did this one. 
And then he says, verse uh, 25, and picking up 25, and we'll finish out 26. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. He foresees that his ministry among them would, would enable them to, as one writer puts it, see more clearly the riches of their salvation in Christ. That it would contribute to their progress and, and joy in the faith. And, and I'll just say this about verse 26, just a side note. It appears to be a, a difficult passage to translate, as noted by the fact of uh, comparing all the English translations. They're very different. Uh, very different on this passage. But sticking with the, uh, the ESV, relying on the ESV, um, I would agree with the following comment concerning this passage as we see it there in the English in the ESV. He says, no doubt they would glory in Christ if and when Paul was restored to them. And of course, we could expect that they would congratulate him too on winning his case. But for him, what we really see here, but for him, it all came down to two dominating motives, which are captured here again at the end of the section. I live on so that others may grow in Christ and that Christ may be glorified in me. My presence with you, I look forward to not you glorying in me, but you through me glorying more and more in Christ. just continues to repeat the same things that we keep seeing about Paul, his singular passion for Christ. It, it reaffirms the statement there in verse 20, 21. For to me to live is Christ. For to me to live is Christ. So let me, as I close, go back to the beginning of this message. Who is your heart and life mostly absorbed, captivated, engrossed, and gripped by? Who? 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 Who are you most determined to live for, to glorify, to magnify? Most. Who are you most determined to make much of? And beloved, I thought, thinking this through, I thought, why might questions like these rouse conviction in a Christian's heart? I mean, don't Christians just say, well, of course, I'm mostly absorbed, captivated, engrossed, and gripped by Christ. Of course, I'm a Christian. And while I would, I would hope and pray that that would be true of many Christians, if it were true, then I guess there would be not much conviction that would be roused in their heart over viewing Paul. It would be, I'm with you, Paul. You and me, same. For me, there is conviction. So I think for you as well, some of you at least, I think, for some of you. Laura, you, not Thomas, but you for sure, Laura. <laughs> Why might, why might questions like these rouse conviction in the Christian heart? And, and so there are, because we, we're not measuring up, and there's reasons for that. And, and we know, beloved, we know this, we have, we sing about it, but we know it to be true by experience as well. And we know it to be true just by what the scriptures say of our condition as saved sinners, not yet glorified and perfected. We have wandering hearts. Jeez. Need to put a rope on that thing, man. And of course, you know, there are ways to put, you don't literally put a rope on it, but you capture the heart by focusing on Christ. But we don't always do that. And sometimes, often, we don't do that. We're so focused on so many lesser things. So our hearts go a wandering, and they're even prone to wander. 
So if we're not actively working to stop their wandering, they will wander. Hello? They will wander. I, I am my greatest enemy. I got my own problems. On top of that, the world doesn't help me. The culture I live in doesn't help me. And there's a number of other things that contribute to my mess and your mess. We have wandering hearts. We, may I say I, and then if you want to join, you can. I allow myself to be distracted by lesser things. But I know to know him is to love him. So when I uh, discipline myself in my heart, my heart is overwhelmed and drawn to the person that is Christ, to all that he is. And my heart sees those things that want, they wandered off to as, as what they are, worthless. So much less to the surpassing value of Christ. But we have wandering hearts, that's why. Our hearts may be a wandering right now. And so, if you truly are a Christian, I think you would have conviction when I ask you such questions. Beloved, unconfessed sin. Unconfessed sin is a hindrance to being mostly absorbed, captivated, engrossed, and gripped by Christ. And being determined to live for him and glorify him and magnify him. Unconfessed, secret sin, kept, not repented of. Refusing to repent. Beloved, so what must you do? Continue to keep it hidden. Continue to to hold on. Sin is a roadblock. It doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be. Confess and be cleansed. By Christ, feel the forgiveness that comes through him and find your heart jumping for joy for him again. Unconfessing, refusing to repent. These are just some of the things that would get in the way of being able to answer the question like we might hope to be able to answer the questions that I asked you. And, but we can't just be convicted and stop there. And that's what I see some Christians do. Yeah, I feel convicted. Okay, now do something. Do, and it's not just something. Do what God has called you to do. Turn to him. Embrace him. Run to him. Run from your sin. Devote yourself to knowing him more and better because the more you know him, the more you will love him. I've said that before. Unlike human beings. He's just, he exceeds everything. And for you who do not belong to Christ, And I don't know who you are, but I expect there are some in here, certainly, for you who do not belong to Christ. How will you respond to what you have heard? How will you respond to what you have heard? Will you go go on living for you? (laughs) Will you do that? Is your motto, for me to live, is me? I hope not. At least... Let me say, I hope you will not let that continue to be your life's motto. Because it's a dead end. As I said last week, there is no gain for you then at death. Only loss. Utter loss. Eternal loss. And it really is in this life, if that is your motto, for me to live as me, it is a pathetic existence. It is a pathetic existence. That's not me casting judgment on you. That's the reality for you. Listen, beloved. Paul was a rejoicing man. 
That's the other thing convicting to me. He was a rejoicing man. One of the main themes of this letter, rejoice, joy. He's rejoicing. Why? Because his life is easy? Chris talked about it. It was his life easy. Easy street, baby. Now that I've found Christ. No. If he would have remained a Pharisee, rejecting Christ, his life actually would have been easier, pathetic, unsatisfying, laced with anxiety, no doubt, fear, all those things that come when you don't know Christ, really. But Paul is a rejoicing man. Why? Because in this life, as messed up as it is, and it is, as difficult as it is, and it is, he could live for Christ. He could make him known. He could spread his name. He could advance his cause, regardless of his circumstances. And that's what you see. I'm in prison. Okay. I rejoice. Because God's name's going out in a bolder and courageous way. I'm going to face trial. I may die. Okay. I look forward to it. And I rejoice. I know I'll rejoice. Because I'm going to use that to exalt Christ, whether by life or by death. And in that, I rejoice. And so as he moved through his life, hope, joy, confidence, real purpose. Oh, beloved, if you're out there and your motto is, for me to live is me, I hope you will see how futile that is, how empty that is, how dangerous that is. And you will give your life to the superior one, to the worthy one, to Christ. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Lord Jesus, I love you. I thank you for you. Holy Spirit, do your work among this group of people. For your glory, God. For your glory. In Christ's name, amen.